0: This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis' time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Well, good morning, guys. It's great to be with you today, and I hope that uh, you had a good week as we embarked uh, last week on a whole new journey in uh, men's fraternity together, moved away from home, and uh, last week what we did, we, we moved over to this mirror, away from the home mirror, moved over to the work mirror, and took our first hard look into what it means to go to work. Hopefully it gave some of you a chance to assess how you engage your work as you looked over That sheet of information I gave you and why you go to work, Uh, what your motivations are as you engage uh, your job each week. Uh, Are you paycheck driven? Remember that last week? You're the guy that's going, show me the money. You're that type of guy. Maybe you're passion driven. Uh, You want a job that you can love. Maybe you're philanthropy-driven. You want to be able to use your job in order to help others. Maybe you're purpose-driven. You want to be someone that God can use in the workforce. Or maybe, as some of you assessed your work last week and the motivations of why you go to work, you see yourself as a combination of all four. We also talked about whether you're getting what you want out of your work. Uh, Are you finding that uh, you're successful at work? Do you feel like you have recognition at work? Is your job a right fit for your particular skill set at work? Do you feel like you have fair compensation? Is there a sense of community with your workmates? Does your work allow you to have balance in your life? You know, all those are wonderful questions that need to be asked to men Since 60% of our adult life, more than any place else, 60% of our adult life is going to be spent on the job. So those are not just important questions, those are life-giving questions. I mean, we're here in this particular portion of men's fraternity to learn how to win at work, and those are winning questions. You know, something else is important about our jobs, maybe as important as all the other questions I just mentioned combined, and that is how we see our work, how we view it. I call it the power of perspective. It's how you see your work, and as amazing as the eye is, it's capturing images, and our eye is wonderful at capturing images. The truth of the matter is, did you know we actually see with our brain? more than we do with our eyes. It's the brain that interprets the images that the eye captures. It classifies them. It takes that image and makes associations with other things that the brain remembers. And then out of that comes a meaning. A meaning in which you really see what's around you. We've all been watching the tragedy of the tsunami in Southeast Asia as that giant wave swept over Indonesia and Sri Lanka and Thailand. I noticed the other day when I was watching a newscast where they sent out some relief planes into the Indian Ocean, and they sent those planes there to drop supplies, food supplies, on some of the tiny islands that are isolated more than any other. One of those islands contained one of the most primitive people on planet Earth. They are literally stuck in the Stone Age. And it was interesting watching an aircraft, a military aircraft, fly low over that particular island to drop these supplies, only to see these, these Stone Age people starting to come out from under the rocks with spears and arrows and begin to throw their arrows, or sh- or throw their spears and shoot their arrows at this plane. Didn't they know it was a relief plane? Their eye captured the exact image that you and I would see. But their brain saw totally something different. Their brain did not see an airplane who was there to help them survive. What their brain saw with the image that their eye captured was this menacing, threatening, terrible bird in the sky that might hurt them we see with our brain and all of life is shaped and impacted by the meaning and associations that our brain gives to the images that our eye captures Now, the reason I tell you that is because today we want to talk about how we see our work not with our eyes but with our brains And how that power of perspective will make all the difference in how you go to work today. In fact, I want to propose to you this morning as we begin that there are two primary views of work. Two colored perspectives that are lodged already in one way or another inside your head that I believe help to shape the way you're going to see your work more than any other. And what we want to do in our time together today is explore those two views of work here's the first one i call it the prevailing view of work and by prevailing i mean the view that is the most accepted view around the world and has been throughout human history and that's this here's the view that work is a concession to life when you go well what do you mean by that robert work is a concession to life It means when you go to work today, you see work as something you have to do in order to live and to play and to possess items and to get what you want out of life. The fact is you view life as just simply that hard reality you have to bow to. It's a necessary evil that if you could escape it, if I could escape it, we both would, but if we can't escape it, which most of us can't, then I just simply need to get on with it. That's just the way life is. And I need to make the most of this necessary evil. Some of you guys feel like that about your work? And that's how you see it. That's how you'll engage it today. This view that work is a necessary evil is the view, I believe, that really has dominated the perspective of most people who've gone into the workforce. It's also the view that has dominated the view of work Throughout human history, and then affects because you have that view lodged in your brain, it affects how you see your work, how you value your work, and even how well you do your work. From the ancient world on, this view has reigned. For instance, the early Hebrews, they viewed work, all work, as a curse. That was devised by God as punishment for the disobedience of that original couple, Adam and Eve. In the powerful culture of the Greeks, most work was not for real men. If you were a real man, you didn't work. The Greek word for work was ponos, which meant sorrow, as in, I'm really sorry if you have to go to work. <laughs> And that's why in Greek culture, after it began to flourish and develop, most everyday work was not done by by the citizens of Greece, but by slaves. Greek citizens pursued what they called the higher exercises of the mind, art, philosophy, and politics. When the Roman culture possessed the Greek culture, the Romans began to adopt the same view of work. Though they were famous, as you know, for organization and administration and building projects and warfare, most Romans shunned everyday work. Last year I was in Italy. I was at the Roman Colosseum, and as I was walking through the Roman Colosseum, listening to various guides around the the Colosseum there talk about the city of Rome, I remember one of the things that caught my attention was the comment by one of the guides there that no citizen of the city of Rome worked. No one worked. They all had a plethora of slaves that did everything for them. Because to be a Roman and work was to be held in contempt. And then for a thousand years, even after the fall of the Roman Empire, as we moved into that darker time called the Middle Ages, when... Hard work was in fact a necessity of life. Even then, work was still held in low regard. It had no intrinsic value or higher meaning other than just simply providing for the physical needs of me and my family. In that period of history, the only work that was considered worthwhile or worthy were those pursuits that were more heavenly minded to be a monk. To be a priest or something like that. All other work continued to be considered as a concession, as a concession to the hard reality of life. I have to, a necessary evil. And so it was, on and on through human history, and even today, in the minds of most people who will get up in a few minutes <laughs> and go to work they will see it as a have-to. They will say these words, it's just a job. It's just a job. That's the prevailing view. They will say it's a necessary means I have to do to get the things I really want for myself. So I use it as a means to an end. And that's how they see work in their brains. They carry that mindset and then when they go to work, everybody they engage, every task they have to do, they see it under the label, have to. A recent Gallup poll found that 50% of all people in the workplace, and this is what Gallup said, are, quote, not engaged in their jobs personally. Now, what did he mean by not engaged? Not engaged meant, and I'm quoting Gallup here, meant that they may be productive at their work, but they are not psychologically connected to their jobs. In other words, they show up and they do their work, but they have absolutely no passion for what they do. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, about passion on the job. But for 50% of the workforce, it's just a means to an end. Now listen, on top of that, there's another 22% who went even further in their report to Gallup. They said they were actively disengaged with their jobs which meant they weren't even looking to be productive. And for many of them, they weren't. What they were looking for was this, a paycheck and comfort at work. That was their whole mindset for spending 60% of their adult life. was just to get a paycheck and be as comfortable as possible. So work defined as a concession to life, as a necessary evil is still the prevailing view of work even in the 21st century, which is why for most people, (laughs) number three, the ultimate goal in life is not to work, but to retire. Isn't that true? Doesn't that bring it home? You know, you got guys that are sitting around and they're 25 years old and they're thinking about where they can put money in their 401k. Why? Because the goal, the golden moment out there is the day I get to lay down my tools, and I don't have to work anymore, and then I'm going to be free to really live. It may take me 50 years, 40 years, whatever it may be, and I'm going to live that huge block of time, 60% of my life, in a futility. I have to. Unnecessary evil. To get to this golden moment of retirement and that's the goal of my life. Is that a good way to live? Well, that brings it home, doesn't it? <laughs> Even as I was preparing this, I thought, that brings it home. The prevailing view of work. Well, well there's a second view. And that's what we want to look at for the rest of our time because the first is thankfully not the only perspective. It's what I call a higher view of work. And in this view, work is not a concession that we have to make to life. Work instead, and this is a radical concept, work instead is a calling. It's the calling of God Himself. That's why in some circles, work is partnered with the word vocation. Have you ever used that for yourself? My vocation is plumbing. My vocation is car salesman, an IT guy. What do we mean when we use the word vocation? You know, vocation speaks to the higher view of work. Did you know that? It comes from the Latin word vocare, which literally means to call. Webster's defines vocation this way. A summons or feeling of being called to a particular activity or work. Now, it doesn't say where that calling comes from. Of course, I think the logical choice is God, but what it's saying is, is that there is a view of work in which you actually feel instinctively from within or from a higher calling from without some movement of destiny towards something that you're supposed to fulfill with your life and give your life to. Vocation implies some greater purpose, some destiny we're to live out in our work. Now, think about that for a moment that's that's a perspective that gets lodged in your brain somewhere and then it colors everything you do i'm going to sell insurance today and as i go to my insurance company as i see people and as i engage people with this insurance that i'm going to sell them In my brain, I'm seeing it all through the fact that I'm offering a service that's going to help them, but it's part of my calling from God to be a difference maker in my world. Not in just what I sell them, but how I sell it to them and how I engage those relationships and how I interact with those folks and how I network my influence. It's a whole different way of seeing work than not sharing a few numbers just to make the sale so I can get that paycheck and then go on and do what I really want to do with my life rather than what I have to do, 8 to 5. That's a different way of seeing work. I want you to notice with me that this higher view of work is set forth in the Scripture. For starters, God is a worker. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? God is a worker. You know, in our church liturgy... Uh, You'll hear pastors or priests talk about God being holy, omnipotent, omniscient, gracious, merciful. And of course, He's all those things. But often left out of that list of attributes is worker. (laughs) Have you ever heard somebody pray this way? Oh, magnificent, all-powerful, gracious, and holy worker. And yet that's exactly what God is. God is a worker, and all the Scripture declares that. In fact, when it's just amazing to me when you open up your Bible and you begin to read the first verse, you engage a God at work. Here's what it says: Genesis one one In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's at work, creative, thinking, purposeful, excited enthusiastic energetic about what he's doing and when you engage the scripture in the very first verse God is working hard we see him work hard day after day after day and in verse 31 it says this and God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good he stepped back and there was a a deep sense of satisfaction about a job well done In Genesis 2-2, we read this, And God rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. He took some time off even from work. Then in Psalm 111, verses 1 and 2, it sums up God's work this way, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is His work. If you don't believe that, just ask any physicist our molecular biologist, our geneticist, our astronomer, and they will tell you this. If they see the world in faith, boy, God knows how to work. He's really a good worker. And that's because at his core, he is a worker. And guys, listen very closely. And the eternity that he has for us, Will not be about some idyllic retirement sitting on a white cloud in a robe. That's not where you're headed. You know where you're headed? To an eternity that's full of work and energy and creativity and new discoveries and new responsibilities in which right now, today, you're being trained for at your job. Wow. That'll kind of blow your hair back a little bit, won't it? That gets your attention. It was with this ultimate destination in mind that God created man as His co-worker. We see that in Psalm 8. Listen at the psalmist who is marveling at this concept that we're co-workers with God. Psalm 8 says this, What is man that you take thought of him? Look at it there, guys. And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You made him to rule over the works of your hands. God starts the process, and then He brings man in to be a part of that work. We have the same assignment, by the way, as the original Adam. We are called to partner with God in His work, just as the original Adam was called to partner with God in work. Look at Ephesians 2.10. It says this, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for... I want always want to stop there and say, look at the verse. Why were we created? Why did God create us? It says it boldly there. For good works. Which he had already made up in his mind, already has thoughts about engaging you with so that you can co labor with him. He did that beforehand that you should walk in them and that I should walk in them. We've been created not to sit, not to retire. We've been created to work, and God is calling us to do those works with him, and that's why we call it a vocation. It's a calling at our jobs you say any job we'll talk about that in a minute but i'd say yeah any job these passages crowd that work was meant to be a calling from god now some of you may say and that's why i put on the outline but what about the curse i mean for the longest time i used to hear work was part of the curse and is that true was the original adam cursed with work because of his sin can i just answer that with one emphatic word no No. You need to read the passage for yourself. Adam was called out to work in the book of Genesis long before sin entered the picture. Work was God's will for Adam, not God's curse on Adam. Guys, work was God's means to develop this first lieutenant for greater work assignments that would carry him all the way into eternity. That's how work was originally introduced to man for his personal development. But when man did sin, then man's sin made God-created work harder. It did make it harder. And the way it made it harder was this, that God cursed the ground that man was going to work on. But listen, here's what he didn't curse. He didn't curse the work of cultivating the ground. The work wasn't cursed. The elements were cursed. Here's the way Genesis 3.17 says it. It says, Cursed is the ground, not cursed is the work, because of you. So work is not the result of the curse. Work is an eternal call. Now, today, on this day, and work will be the call over your life forever. And that's why understanding work and discovering my fit in work and feeling a call to work and seeing a much broader understanding of work in my mind that we'll talk about in the sessions to come is so important for a guy who's going to engage 60% of his time as an adult in the workforce. You need to be infused with a higher view of work. Now here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. This perspective that I just gave you of the higher view of work has never been prevalent in any culture in human history until the 1500s. This view of work that I just introduced to you only came about during the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. There's a little history lesson just for a moment. Most of you know the Protestant Reformation was one of the great defining moments of church history. If you don't, I'll give you just a few things that will help you kind of know what I'm talking about. Because when the Protestant Reformation came about in the 1500s, led by figures like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, what happened during that time is those men led a rebellion of sorts against the Catholic Church, which at that time was the only church. And led a rebellion against the traditions and the beliefs and the doctrines of the Catholic faith at that particular time. They, they felt like there were things that had gone astray. And so they began to challenge those practices. They protested, which is why we call it the Protestant movement. And that protest at that particular time shook the Christian world by replacing the authority of the church, at least in the mind of the reformers, was suddenly the authority of the Bible. And that was a huge paradigm shift to go from the church as the authority to the Bible as the authority. Sola Scriptura was the cry of the Protestant Reformation. The Scripture alone. They rejected a works-based salvation. They threw out indulgences and penance and purgatory. Salvation was now by faith And the Reformers claimed it had always been by faith and by faith alone. And they wrestled with the Catholic Church until finally they broke with the church and created a new church altogether. Now that's how most of us, when we hear the words Protestant Reformation, that's how most of us think. We think in terms of the great contributions of the Protestant Reformation to the church. Can I tell you something that will surprise you? One of the greatest contributions of the Protestant Reformation was to everyday work. To how you'll go to work today in the 1500s. One of the the paradigm-busting principles of the Protestant Reformation was not just on the church side, it was on the work side. Because these reformers introduced a new way of seeing work not as some have to that lesser men must do but as a call of God now how did they do that well they began to look back into the scripture and to find all of life through the scripture and what they saw in scripture was that work was a noble god ordained calling and not just a calling that the lower classes had to do as some necessary evil but just what we just saw as a way of partnering with God all through life, that work was a way of glorifying God by how I engage my work and that it could even be used by God to advance His ways and His kingdom on earth. I like what writer and scholar Carl F. Henry once said. He summarized it this way. He said, Wherever Protestant Christianity has gone, it has, and these are his words, etched a halo around man's daily labor. So out of the Protestant Reformation came one of the most revolutionary ideas of all of human history. It was called the Protestant work ethic. Have you heard that? The Protestant work ethic. Here's what it emphasized. First, it emphasized three things. It emphasized work as the will of God for everyone. Suddenly, those who were wealthy, rulers, business owners, work wasn't something you told everybody else to do. Work was something everyone should do. Everyone should be engaged in work. Secondly, it endorsed all work of every kind with an equal dignity. There wasn't a caste system of work that one job was better than the other. Being a priest, for instance, was no better than being an auto mechanic. All legitimate work, at least from a scriptural point of view, had an equal dignity to it. And third, it encouraged honesty and diligence in work while investing, not consuming the profits from work. In the Protestant work ethic, the purpose of work, listen guys, was not to consume everything you make. It wasn't just to get a lot of stuff. And the Protestant work ethic, and I think it can be demonstrated, it's very biblically rooted, was to live moderately with what you earned and then use the rest to invest to change the world around you for good. My work was to be a co-worker with God for these good works that I was prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. That was the view, and I believe it was a very biblical view, of work. Now what happened? What happened? In the 1500s and later, thousands of believers who embraced this aha, this new view of work, began to engage work just that way. Seeing it as a call from God, especially in Western Europe and later in America. And as that happened, two things simultaneously occurred. You know what they were? There was sudden economic expansion like the world had never seen. And there was also personal prosperity that the world had never imagined. In 1905, a famous essay was written by a German sociologist by the name of Max Weber entitled, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And in it, Weber rightfully demonstrated how the economic prosperity and power that had swept Europe and America in the hundreds of years that had followed this new idea of work that this economic power that you and I are enjoying right now, and that whether you know it, you're influenced by, when you go to the workplace, it's still out there, that that economic power that we call capitalism, every bit of it, as Weber pointed out, has its first root in some reformers in the 1500s who initiated what was called the Protestant reformation and with it the protestant work ethic now I want you to know these reformers didn't just make it up they got it from the scripture and there's probably no scripture that summarizes this higher view of work better than Colossians chapter 3 I want to look at it for just a moment Colossians chapter 3 verses 23 and 24 I want you to look at it in fact guys I would even challenge you if you want to set your mind right it might be good might be really healthy for you to memorize this passage. I've given you two versions. Here's what one says, the New American Standard. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Living Bible puts it this way. Work hard and cheerfully at all you do just as though you were working for the Lord and not merely for your masters, remembering that it is the Lord Christ who is going to pay you, giving you full portion of what He owns. He is the one you are really working for. Now look at those verses and just let it soak in for a minute. Do you see clearly this higher view of work there? did not it just jump out at you wonder, why didn't people see it beforehand? There it is, shouting at us. That work is much bigger than we think and if we have this view it will affect everything we do on the job now while those verses are there let's just make some observations and then we'll be done today here's the first this passage says and you'll see it in the passage these are obvious but I think it's good to call them out this passage says all work is a calling of God where do I see that? In the words that start the verse. Whatever you do. <laughs> it doesn't say certain things you do, a few things you do. It says whatever work that you do, that's a calling of God. Look at the last line on your outline. It says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever you do is a calling of To serve Him. And knowing that will have an impact on us. It will have an impact in two areas. One, it will increase the value of our work. I mean, if I'm really working for God and the purposes of God, then my job's important. Whether I'm a window washer or whether I'm on Wall Street. In that, if I carry this view, I'm going to see something of great intrinsic value. It affects my value of work. It also brings accountability to work. Because if I'm working for God, God doesn't forget. He sees everything that I'm doing. One day there will probably be an accounting of what I did and how I did it. All work is a calling of God. Second, all work is working for God. You see that in the passage, don't you, where it says, you know, do your work for God and not just for men, you're working for God. The truth is Christ is the everyday boss of your work. That's who you're working for. It may be Frank Wilson over you. He may be the CEO. But he has a CEO. Whether you know it or not. And through him, to you, is your everyday real boss. Jesus Christ, which speaks to the subject of authority, doesn't it? Who you work under and listen to on the job. It also speaks to ethics, by the way. The standards you work with and abide by. If God is your boss, then as an employee, I know we'll have our our, our company codes, but, but I've got a code that even exceeds that on the job. My ethics manual is the scripture. It's for me the company code of conduct. And no doubt it will exceed any company's code of conduct. It will make me work higher than those who just operate by standing operating procedures. Because I have that higher view of work when I enter the workplace today. Third, this passage teaches that all work should get my best. You see that in the phrase, the lusty phrase, do your work heartily. Feel that? comes from the gut. This speaks to effort. It speaks to enthusiasm on the job. Some of you know Truett Cathy, who is a businessman. He bought into this higher view of work years ago and then went on to found the company Chick-fil-A. Here's Kathy's motto. Save 10%, give 10%, and on the job, work 10% harder. It has been with that kind of approach that Kathy has built a billion-dollar industry on customer service. Do your work heartily also speaks to excellence. A number of years ago I was in France and I went to the uh, the Louvre, the great museum there in Paris. They had just done some archaeological work underneath the Louvre. And so I got one of the first tours underneath and saw what was a, the original stones of a castle upon which hundreds of years later the Louvre was built. As our God took us and looked at those ruins of that castle underneath the Louvre, one of the things I noticed on the stones that were uh, there building a turret underneath the Louvre was that some of the stones had crosses on them. Every once in a while you'd see a stone that had a cross on it. And so I asked our guide, I said, what, what is that? And the, uh, the guide said, well, those were, Christian, those were the Christian stone makers. The reason they put the cross there is this, and she said, they wanted every stone that they made to be just right for the glory of God. (laughs) Here's a guy, now just think back, we're talking hundreds of years ago, and what is he doing? He's chipping rock, but with a higher view. He wasn't just chipping rock, You know, so they could wedge it in there. No, he wanted an exact fit. And why? He wanted it because in his mind, he believed he was working for God. And he wanted his labor to contribute in some way to the glory of God. That's how he saw his work. Finally, I want you to know this passage teaches that all work done rightly... Is promised rewards from God. You notice there it says, From the Lord you will receive the reward. The Living Bible says, The Lord Christ is going to pay you, giving you your full portion of what He owns. I believe that, by the way, guys, that reward takes many forms, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the course of work. It could be prosperity. I think people who work with this kind of attitude prosper, financially prosper many times. Their business grows and expands. It could be influence. Just the fact that you carry yourself that way, you begin to see the work within the work. And we'll talk about that later. And that is, you begin to influence people and pull them up with you. They begin to notice the difference in how you go about your work and the attitude you engage your work and the excellence with which you do your work, even when no one is watching. Because of that that pulls them to ask questions, sometimes even eternal questions. The reward could be, and I just put this, in any number of surprises. Sometimes there's just surprises about how God rewards. You think Kurt Warner was surprised after he gave his life to Christ and went from playing arena league football to being MVP of the Super Bowl? That was a surprise. You think he made the connection? See, I think he did. There are thousands of connections like that to a man who has a higher view of work. Let me close today's session by just reading you one real-life story of a guy in a hard arena who, who lived this higher view of work and experienced in some ways all the things I just told you about in Colossians 3. This is from Bob Record's book, Made to Count. But it's a true story And some of you will remember this particular individual. Others of you will be new to. But it's a great account of a guy who engaged God at his work. It says, In 1785, a 27-year-old member of the English parliament, William Wilberforce, wrote a letter to John Newton requesting a secret meeting. Some of you know John Newton. He wrote the song that USA Today said in a survey was America's favorite all-time song, Amazing Grace. But at this time, John Newton was just a small church pastor in England. And so William Wilberforce, this 27-year-old member of Parliament, requested a a secret meeting to avoid anyone finding out they met in Newton's home rather than the church. "'I have come to a crisis in my soul,' said the grim-faced member of Parliament. "'If my constituents were to hear that I have embraced religion,' my career would be over. For the next few hours, Newton explained the way of the cross to Wilberforce. And in the end, Wilberforce wept and gave his life to Christ. Now he was ready to forsake his career and follow Newton into the ministry. But Newton counseled against it. There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot be both a Christian and a politician, he said. Now, some of us would go, I don't know about that. (laughs) Wilberforce accepted this advice and decided to remain where he was and serve God. He went public with his newfound faith and endured endless ridicule because of it. But finally, after winning grudging respect from his contemporaries, he turned his considerable energy towards abolishing the slave trade, a blight on the soul of the British Empire. It was exhausting work, demanding everything Wilberforce had. Without a faith in his calling, lesser men would have turned back. Every year for the next 17 years, Wilberforce would lobby hard and then make a motion to abolish the British slave trade. And every year for the next 17 years, his motion would be defeated. But Wilberforce never forgot the words of Newton and the conviction that he was called to serve Christ in the parliament. It never left him. And in 1806, after 18 years of hard work, Wilberforce finally got what he had longed for. The slave trade was abolished. But he wasn't satisfied. Never flinching from his call, Wilberforce continued to work tirelessly against the entire institution of slavery After 27 more years of hard work, just four days before his death in 1833, Parliament passed a vote to abolish slavery in all the British territories. Wilberforce the Christian had remained Wilberforce the member of Parliament and God had used him to change the world. In some small way, Every man has that opportunity today. But it will take a different way of seeing his work. Here's the bottom line, guys. You know, in just a few moments, we're going to be dismissed or small groups, and then afterwards, you're going to march out like those elves saying, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Right? But here's the question. When you get there, how are you going to engage your work? The bottom line is this. Your work today will be driven by how you see, not with your eyes, but with your brain, your work. That's the power of perspective. And my prayer for you is that today, what you guys will see at your work is not have to, but the higher view. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.